Hey guys, good morning, good afternoon, good day to you. We have Tina on with us today. Thank you for joining us, Tina. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Me too. So Tina, if you don't know her, she is the host of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast, who is amazing. We talk about criminal mixed with medical, mixed with amazing nursing heroes. It's such a great podcast and so much fun. So I'm excited to be doing it live and in person here with Tina today. Oh, I'm really excited about this too. So those of you who are tuning in, welcome. You're welcome to submit your questions, your comments. As you have something to say about our discussion, go ahead and interject. We're excited that you're here. All right, Tina, go for it. Okay. Well, hey, everybody. This is Tina, obviously, with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Really excited to be here doing this live show. It's very different. We'll eventually, we'll edit this and put it on as a regular podcast. And uh, But for now, it's just going to be live and it'll be what it will be. And it's really fun. And glad to be doing this with Chelsea, with Tribe RN. It's a wonderful group of people. What a, a wonderful, encouraging group of people. And just super excited to be able to do this. I guess we can get started with this this bad doctor story. First of all, Chelsea did put a trigger warning on in the group, but just in case you missed that or even to just sort of reiterate it because this is about an OBGYN and he did abuse his patients. And if you can just imagine the types of uh, surgeries and things that OBGYNs do, you might maybe think even almost the worst you could think of. So if you think that could possibly be triggering to you or disturbing, please just, you know, maybe set this one out because it's honestly, it was hard to even do the show notes for this story. It's, It's pretty rough. I do think though, Chelsea, that it's important to talk about these things as hard as it is because there are nurses who are in situations like this where they're watching and witnessing people people who are supposed to be respected and who are trusted. They witness someone do something like this and you, you almost don't know what to do. And we want to empower people to speak up, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just... You know, that duty to report, sometimes we talk ourselves out of it. And so I'm really looking forward to giving some resources and talking about empowering, just like you said, empowering our industry to uh, take a hold of that duty to report and do your part. Yes, absolutely. So having said all of that, just to kind of give you a minute, if you want to bail to do that, this is the story of Graham Steve. Graham Stephen Reeves, he is an o- he was an OBGYN from Australia. And this story was sent to me by a listener in Australia. We have quite a few listeners in Australia, actually. We appreciate them so much. We appreciate all of our listeners, of course. And especially when you guys send us stories. I had never heard of this before. It's shocking and appalling in every single way. So Graham Reeves started his medical career in obstetrics and gynecology um, at a hospital in Sydney, Australia in 1985. And then over the next 15 years, he would have 35 official complaints that were made, made about him. And that started in 1986, just a year after, you know, right after he started working. So yeah, so this uh, included bullying other staff members, patients, failing to offer adequate pain relief. So in 1995, a uh, two attending midwives and a pediatric resident complained that he had bullied a patient that was that had delivered a non-viable fetus because he did not offer adequate pain relief and had declined their offers to resuscitate her. It's just a kind of a difficult. It's kind of hard to imagine this in the situation how 
the lack of compassion someone could have. Yeah. Can you imagine being in that delivery room? And I mean, our instinct as nurses is to Mm -hmm. save somebody. And we even have to process that idea of like, okay, this one's not viable. We're not going to save it. But I mean, my, my instinct is to do my part and to attempt to save this life. And he didn't even allow their attempts. I just can't imagine. And in the moment, I mean, I think you're like, oh, okay. And then after the fact, you're thinking, that wasn't right, right? I don't know if in the moment you, I'm not quite sure how I as the nurse or the nurse practitioner, how you would quite handle that. Right, and that's what these split-second decisions that have to be made. It can be, I would imagine, very off-putting because you're standing there, this person is in charge, really? The, the, the midwives and the other nurses, the other staff that are there, and even the patient, that they are at the will of this this physician who is kind of the one who says yay or nay, whether they will proceed um, or or whether that patient is going to get adequate pain medicine. And I can't imagine being a provider, being a healthcare professional standing there, feeling like that patient really does need pain medicine and it's not being offered or being told, no, you have to stop doing what you're doing. You, We're not going to do any, we're not going to move forward. How frustrating that must have been for those people. Right, right. And you're thinking, you know, we haven't even tried effectively, right? And you're telling me to stop. I mean, yeah, how difficult that, and who knows how those healthcare providers in the room responded and then how that patient felt, how the mom felt watching this scene unfold. And I mean, I'm sure they were very professional, but I just, I just can't fathom. Oh, I can't either. In May of 1996, um, a patient of Reeves at the Hills Private Hospital died of septicemia after he refused to order antibiotics for that patient. And the hospital suspended his privileges as a medical officer there. That was in 1996. And you would think, oh, wow, he got in trouble. He, he, it was recognized that he had done something wrong. And his, his privileges were suspended. So you would kind of think the story would sort of end there. And unfortunately, it doesn't. And it's just, it barely scrapes the surface. And okay, this is this happened and then this happened and refused to order antibiotics. You know, I was thinking about it. And what would be your first line of defense when you knew you needed to report? Would you go to your charge nurse? What would you do? I think that that's sort of the protocol. You know, if you feel like your patient is not getting adequate care, you that's sort of your first line. You go to your charge nurse and you discuss it with that person. And if you feel like that person is blowing you off, then you go up a level and you don't stop. You just don't stop. You keep going. There was, I feel like in a hospital now, if it's a smaller hospital, I don't know. Is there always another level to go to? Maybe not because I actually, I worked at a smaller hospital where did feel like the chain of command kind of was pretty short. There wasn't a whole lot, you know, that you could do once you went a couple of levels up. But generally speaking, there is something you can do, usually, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a compliance hotlines at every hospital I've ever worked at. There's some sort of compliance initiative that allows you to call a phone number um, associated with the organization. And it's essentially a, an anonymous, if you wanted it to be, an anonymous reach for help. But then there's also the whistleblower organization. I was talking to one of our fellow uh, fellow podcaster, Kevin, and Sarah Wells, actually. I was talking with them about this exact thing last night, kind of picking their brains about 
how how else we can report, what other tools we can discuss here today. And they were talking about the whistleblower line, which is, you know, specifically blowing the whistle. You can do that anonymously or, or not. And then also your hospital admin, which you discussed going up that chain of command. But if you absolutely have to, the physicians or the nursing board, you got to comply to report there if none of your other stops have made a difference. Yeah. And it, it might be that because all of those things do take a little time. I mean, if someone is really in bad shape right then and, and you really are trying to advocate for them and get them help, you might be in a situation where you it doesn't maybe help that particular patient. But ultimately, you know, don't just stop there because you can help patients in the future who are in the situation. Because I guarantee you, all of the things that you're talking about, the resources that you're talking about were probably not in place back in 1996 when this happened. But because this happened and it was brought to light at some point, I guarantee you changes were made uh, to improve the system and give us resources like that. So... The Hills Hospital, which is where that happened, also noted that he had aggressive conduct and observed that similar problems were known from two other hospitals that he had privileges at as well. And then in 1996, apparently he was diagnosed with a narcissistic personality disorder. So in 1997, a hospital advisory committee placed limits on his practice in obstetrics. Again, you would think this would this would be a hard stop for what he's able to do to women, but they would not allow him to deliver babies any longer. And they suspended him from the gynecology clinic in 2000, a few years later, after midwives refused to work with him and his position was never restored at that hospital. So this, all of these things, you would, you would just think, okay, this is where it's going to end because surely someone who has reached a point that a hospital has you know, removed privileges and then flat out refused to let them practice at all, they're not going to be able to get a job anywhere else, you would hope. But you would hope, but so many times we do these stories, that isn't the case. It This is, I feel like a broken record week after week whenever we do stories about not just doctors, other, other people, nurses, and other healthcare professionals who, for whatever reason, are their ethics are definitely questionable and they have no regard for human life, no regard for suffering. And in fact, sometimes seem to enjoy inflicting suffering on other people and watching other people suffer. And they will just move from hospital to hospital because the hospitals don't want to deal with it. It's like, if, as long as I got rid of him, then I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't, you know, this hospital doesn't want any more publicity than we have to have. But the thing is, is that sometimes you question did they do their duty in reporting to the Board of Physicians to ensure that this doesn't continue? I think clearly it reached administration and hopefully whoever was doing their duty to report, obviously they got their point across, right? But my goodness, I, I think you're onto something with the hospital being in the spotlight. Yeah, I've just done too many of these stories. It's the, that seems to be the common denominator in a lot of these stories. Uh, in 2002, he was hired as an obstetrician and gynecologist in the South Coast region of New South Wales by the Greater Southern Area Health Service. So just, you know, large health service there in Australia. And his application for the position provided partial information about restrictions on his license, but not the order that he not practice obstetrics. 
And so the GSAH, that organization that hired him, they didn't verify with the medical board that Reeves was allowed to practice in the specialties he was hired for. They just let him start working. And so the restriction on his practice was revealed during a reference check in April, but not acted on. And then his hiring was actually promoted, and which is, I don't know what what is more disgusting in this story, but it's per, his hiring was promoted by local papers as being a blessing for women in the area. So if you are living in the area and you read in the local paper, like, wow, look how wonderful this it is. What great news. This OBGYN has moved into our area and blessed the women of this area. Would you not think, oh, well, this is who I want to go to to have my baby delivered or have surgery? Newsflash, don't listen to the news. Gosh, definitely not. The GSAHS, which is that organization, again, that hired him, the the deputy director of medical services was suspended on full pay, of course. I've never, you know, I've never heard of a nurse ever being suspended on full pay for in my life for anything, whether it was their fault or not. But in May of 2008, okay, that's a few years after, right? All, All this happened. Yeah, so full pay, suspended with full pay, May 2008 for failing to act on the information about Reeves' obstetrics ban. So it was revealed in April of 2002 in a reference check. So it's kind of, I did a story last week where this nurse was hired before a background check was done. And it sounds like, and, and I was shocked when I saw that, when I was doing research for that story. I just remember thinking, surely that doesn't happen. There's no way that happens. Nobody would do that. But Basically, that's pretty much what happened. They did not do a reference check until after he was hired. And then it was kind of one of these situations where, oh, and, and you know, these people run, these are not just, you know, weak or, or not supposed to be. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to say they're not supposed to be weak-minded people or meek people. And yet they're sitting there going, well, we hired him already. Are we allowed to fire him? I don't know. And that's basically what happened. So even though it came back, oh, he's banned from from performing obstetrics. Now what do we do? We already hired him, you know? And you would think that it would be just like, well, you fire him. That's not hard because he had to have been dishonest with in his interview or on his resume, right? I mean, surely. Right. <laughs> At least dishonest by omission, not telling them everything. It's hard for me to imagine that they, that it was really a, um, hard for them to to know what to do. But that was what they said. It, it was like, well, um, we've already hired him and we don't, we're not sure what to do. So by the end of 2002, complaints and memos were prepared about difficult working relationships. Of, you know, I know that's a shocker, but this man can't get along with anybody. And so staff members at the hospital where he was working just could not get along with him. In November, discussions between the medical board and the GSAHS revealed that Reeves was not allowed to practice as an obstetrician. And as a result, Pambula Hospital did not provide obstetric services. So this hospital just said, well, so uh, the man that is on staff here as an OBGYN, he is not allowed to deliver babies. So I guess we just won't offer that service. That was their answer to that. Geniuses. No, that's crazy. I mean, and to think that they didn't wait to hire him until his background check came back. How many times have you been told, oh, give it us about a week. It takes about a week for the background check to clear. You know that, you know, they're checking you out to make sure. And I'm thankful for that. 
I want to make sure that my peers are in good standing. Yeah, I would be really upset, I think, and uh, and shocked if if the, if a hospital just hired me without doing a background check or was saying, well, you know, we're going to go ahead and hire you and let you start taking care of patients. I'm sure the background check will be fine. I would be just standing there thinking, do you do this with everyone? Because you don't know me. Right. Uh, But for someone who has a shady past, that's just a wonderful situation because otherwise you would think they wouldn't be able to get a job. No way. So uh, one patient reported that he sexually assaulted her in November of 2002. And so you know that it was earlier that year in April that they found out about, they knew about his past. And so now this is November. So this should never have happened. It should never have happened. Hey, Nadia wants to know if we can get the link to this article after the show. Yeah, absolutely. We can certainly do that. Where should we put that? I'll put it in the show notes here. Oh, perfect. Okay, yep, absolutely. So another patient saw him in January, 2003 and- she said that he botched her gynecological procedure and she needed a full hysterectomy a year later, chronologically, but there's a reason and I kind of wanted to focus in on the story because it is the one that, oh my gosh, it's just horrifying. So there was a small patch of discolored skin on her labia, uh, later identified as a form of precancer. And so she said that right, she goes in for, for surgery and he said, yes, we need to remove that. They're, they had tried a lot of things she had tried a lot of things medically to try to get rid of this, like apparently, and then decided to go ahead and go with the surgery. And as she's in the area, right before she goes back, you know how that, if you've ever had surgery, that moment right before you sort of go under, you've been given the medicine and you're, and you're told like count, count backwards and then you don't remember anything after that. That was sort of the moment that this happened. She, the last thing that she remembers before going under this uh, doctor, as I, I put in quotes, bent down to her so that she was the only one who could hear him talking and whispered in her ear, I'm going to take your clitoris too. And so in post-operative recovery, she learned that instead of just removing a small lesion, that sadistic surgeon had cut away all of her external genitalia. Uh, that just makes me so furious. Like, I just cannot fathom. It's absolutely sickening. Just the Gosh, I just don't, I can't even imagine the boldness of someone doing something like that with all the other staff that are around. She said she woke up and had lost one and a half liters of blood. And he told her the fun bits always bleed a lot, but don't worry, you can still have sex. So later in court, a nurse who was there in the procedure said that she asked why he was taking so much and he told her, oh, well, her husband's dead, so it doesn't matter. So in the moment, you picture being this nurse, I have goosebumps, this is infuriating. Mm-hmm. In the moment, you're the OR nurse, you see that, you know, here we're doing a skin lesion removal and you observe that clearly that's not what's happening or that's not the extent of what's happening, Right. And you call him on it in the OR. Hey, what's happening? I thought we were here for a piece of skin removal. And he statistics, I just can't even get past this. How awful. Yeah, and, and he obviously, this was all pre-planned. He knew what he was doing. The fact that he bent down and said what he did to her, he knew he wanted to terrorize her. He wanted to terrorize her. He wanted to mutilate her. He wanted her to suffer, not just then, 
but forever. And if that's not sadistic, I don't know what is. I don't either. And I would just, anyone that's in these circumstances, I'm so proud of this nurse for speaking up in the moment. Because, I mean, we don't know how we would handle that in the moment, but I would sure hope that I would be bold enough as she was to say, what are you doing? I and unfortunately, even then, it would have been too late. But it, I don't know. Oh my gosh. Right. There's not, not much you can do. I mean, you you could be another surgeon standing there assisting him. And what could you do if 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 this is what he was doing? You, you know, I mean, that's just the situation that went on and that all of those people were in. And I can imagine that the, the nurse, I mean, the, the patient herself said that, by him doing this, mutilating her like this, that it took away the core of her being and left her with impaired urinary function. And I would imagine that all of the staff that were in the operating room that day were probably forever changed, probably have PTSD from that and have continued to suffer from just guilt of even though they couldn't do anything, just the inability of, you know, to have to stand there and watch that. Mm, I just cannot fathom. So uh, complaints, of course, continued uh, about unauthorized obstetric practice at at Vega Hospital, where he was also performing surgeries. And they continued to allow him to practice as a gynecologist because they didn't know if they had the power to suspend him. And so then in February of 2003, the medical board ordered that he be banned from obstetric practice, that that continue. And on on April the 7th, uh, they notified Reeves that that his contract would not be renewed when it ended and then he continued to provide gynecological services through July, which was the last day of his contract. So none of this was enough for them to say, we're going to, you know, this breaks your contract. We're going to stop you. We're not going to let you near women. It, none of it was enough for them to protect anyone from him. I just him. don't know how the healthcare system in Australia works compared to the U.S., but you would think that no matter what the differences are, that, oh, come on, this has to be enough. Well, yeah, surely. Uh, yes, I, I know. And it, 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 is, it is difficult doing a story like this when we really don't live there and don't really understand how, how their health system works. But at the same time, I, I know that they are all, we're all human beings on this planet and we all pretty much think and feel the same. And this person is a monster and most everyone else would agree that what he did was completely sadistic and wrong and the whole situation is just completely messed up. And it's hard for me to, you know, one thing that she said later on was that if this had happened to a man, that it probably would have been very different. The outcome would have probably been very very different because for one thing, a lot of times it is men that are in, positions that are, you know, higher up in administration. And even if they have compassion, you know, and have the ability to, I mean, are just mortified and horrified at what happened. It's, I would say that probably it's kind of one of these things where they're, they can be shocked and horrified and sickened and everything else. But then if they think about it happened to a man, it's magnified, you know. Just because they can relate on a different level. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I don't know. I just, I really don't. It's hard for me to understand how how that could have happened. So, well, there was a private lobbying group called the Medical Errors Action Group that reported 
that they had complaints related to 185 separate incidences regard, you know, that, that pertain to him. And then September 2008, he was charged with 17 criminal uh, charges that were relating to 10 different victims. So in March of 2011, he was found guilty of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm on the woman he had mutilated. And he was sentenced to two to three and a half years for the assault on her and other patients. And so she was one of the the 10, 10 victims. And so it was all sort of the same trial. And together with the financial deception involved in practicing obstetrics in Vega without a license, he ended up serving 11 months for what he did. So in 2017, he was arrested and brought to trial for manslaughter. So back in 1996, I mentioned this earlier, Carrie Ann McAllister, she was 38 years old. She died from septicemia after she gave birth to her third son. In his opening statement during this trial, the prosecutor said that a reasonably competent obstetrician could have diagnosed a bacterial infection. And the way the situation worked is she was at this hospital. She was obviously very sick. A reasonable physician would have said, oh, wow, we need antibiotics on board. We need to, you know, uh, do tests, blood cultures, whatever, figure out what. And he just said it's viral and would not would not give her. When it seemed like the, the nurses uh, caring for this patient specifically requested an antibiotics and he declined. I mean, even the nurse sitting at the bedside, you don't even have to be a competent obstetrician. (laughs) The nurse said, hey, we need some antibiotics here. And he declined. Well, and every now and then, I don't think this is, I don't think this is typical, but every now and then you will get a provider who doesn't really like it when nurses recommend. They don't They don't necessarily like the R part of the S bar. They would perhaps, you know, maybe wish that you would just leave that part off. Let them know the situation, let them know the background, let them know the assessment, but stop there. We don't want, we don't need your recommendations. You're just a nurse. You don't know what you're doing. I'm the one with the medical degree or the higher level of degree. So, and sometimes those people will even go the other direction, even if they know what they should do and because they just just being stubborn and i just wonder if that was not the situation sure i don't know if you've ever worked in these cases but i know i have and you learn to communicate with those providers in a kind of a roundabout way where you're essentially not making the recommendation you're kind of putting all the facts out there and then you kind of have to and i know this sounds stupid but to me it's most important for my patient to get the care that they need versus for me to feel like I'm getting the spotlight. So the way I handled it in my later years, I wasn't like this as a younger nurse, but as I grew um, in maturity, I guess, I would say something to the effect of, what do you think we should do? Do you think this would work? Or do you think this would work? And maybe just kind of leave it out there on the table in more of an educational platform versus a recommendation platform. Yes, I think that's a great idea. And the, the fact is that nurse practitioners, PAs, medical doctors, DOs, all of the people who are in positions like that to be able to make medical diagnoses and prescribe antibiotics and order treatments for, for patients and interventions for the nurse to then carry out, mm-hmm. they obviously they have more education than we do. They know things. 
that we don't know. One of the team leaders where I work right now, we were just talking about this over the weekend and I told her, I was like, you're going to have to come on the podcast and talk about this because she is probably one of the smartest nurses I've ever met. She is so incredible. She's a team leader on CBICU. She's just amazing. And she's in nurse practitioner school right now. And she's telling me, she said, I did not know what I didn't know. And she's like, I'm overwhelmed with the responsibility of having someone there in front of me that I'm responsible for understanding how to recognize what's going on with this person and diagnose them. It's one thing when you are the nurse and you have someone come in in CHF exacerbation or, you know, whatever the situation. And you might even in those situations be able to recognize things and be like, oh, I know what this is. But you don't have all this knowledge that you don't even know you don't have. Does that make sense at all? Absolutely. That As that old saying goes, you don't know what questions you have when you don't know. So, you know, a brand new nurse, for instance, they don't know what questions to ask because they don't know what they don't know. That's exactly right. Yes, it's it's so true. And so I I definitely think that it is important to come, you know, even for, for providers that are respectful of nurses and, you know, respect us for our, our profession and, and our knowledge and our experience, because we do learn a lot from just working at the bedside and seeing this patient having this problem and doing this intervention and it working or this not working. And we put it all together and we, and we're nerds too. We go home and study, you know, we're not even at work. Right. And we learn. But I think that it's, it's so much healthier for us as nurses to approach the provider in a way that is respectful of their knowledge and their education. But, you know, that says, Hey, I have enough experience to kind of understand this, but I was almost thinking that this might be something that you would do. Can you explain to me why would we or would we not do that? Like, is am I on the right track here? Give them the credit they deserve, really, for their education. And then let them kind of be like, yeah, actually, that's that's actually a really good idea. Let's do that. And a really good uh, provider will do that. You know, they will, they will let you know, like, hey, good job. Actually, good call. I'm, I, we're going to do that. Or they might say, well, I like how you're thinking. I, I can see why you would think that way, but here's why that won't work. Or, you know, or they may just be a jerk and then just decide to walk away and not do anything for your patient. So apparently that's Dr. Reeves. So basically that was the situation that we're in right now. He's on trial for this thing that happened. And and I, I what I imagine happened is in hindsight, everyone is scrambling around going, surely in the however many years, all these decades that he's been making all these people mad, mutilating people, doing performing surgeries that are unnecessary, being a jerk to his patients and the staff members. Surely there's something we can go back and find. And there, this, because there probably wasn't a statute of limitations um, on manslaughter, you know, they were able to go back and then try him for this. And that's where we are now. This woman's temperature went to 104.5 degrees, which is 40.3 in Celsius for you guys who are listening (laughs) that aren't in the U.S. So he allegedly told one nurse who was really worried, I'm well aware of her temperature. She's got a virus. And he just, you know, obviously that nurse is, is just like beside herself. Please do something. I can't imagine the frustration. I just can't. And then this woman ends up dying and and it was a bacterial infection and it could have been stopped 
How disgusting. I mean, so the court heard that he refused to examine Miss McAllister and said that he would not enter her hospital room because he didn't want to catch whatever it was that she had, which in his eyes, I guess, was a virus. And then he saw the results of her blood tests that were ordered by another doctor and then decided to have her transferred to another hospital. And then she ended up dying there because it was too late. Uh, One of our viewers says that they wish that they could discuss with the providers and and learn and, you know, critically think with the providers on staff, but she feels like they're always in a hurry. And honestly, from my own perspective, I really like to be in rounds. And in the pediatric ICU, we did rounds on day shift and on night shift, which is not super, super common. So I know I was kind of spoiled in that ability to really process with the providing team and say, okay, well, I understand this, this, and this, but I'm not quite sure why this fits in or why we're doing this or why we're not doing this. Can you help me understand it? I love the way that you described your method because that's very similar to the way I learn and process as well. But hopefully you have an opportunity to do rounds. What else do you suggest, Tina? Yeah, rounds, that's a, that's really important. We do that at our hospital. It's wonderful. I love the idea of night. I, the problem is always a staffing issue. And it's not just with nurses, you guys. Doctors and nurse practitioners struggle with this too. They are overwhelmed just like we are. They have too many patients just like we do a lot of times. And this is a problem in hospitals all across this country. I don't I don't know if it's a problem in other countries. I, I think it probably is because I've, I've talked to nurses and in, in, in definitely in Europe. And so I think this is a global issue. We have a shortage of healthcare workers and of good healthcare workers. And so you, we don't have the staff. So the doctors are kind of like when we are supposed to have two patients in the ICU or three patients on PCU or step down or four to five patients, you know, on a med surge floor. And then, you know, you're, you're here on med surge, you've got eight or something ridiculous like that. Or, you know, in ICU, you've got three or in PCU, you've got four or five. So think, think about that from a doctor's or, or nurse practitioner's perspective. And they are supposed to have so many patients and they have way more than they're supposed to have. And they can't spread themselves out. And they've got all these nurses all over contacting them saying, oh, my patient's this, my patient's that. Is it this, is it that? And they're just like, oh, I don't have time to deal with this. So bless the doctors who do take the time and the nurse practitioners who do take the time to to just, you know, one second, just be like, hey, you know, thanks for offering that. Um, Here's why we won't do this. Or no, that's a great idea. Because I know you guys have a lot on you too. You know, one other thing I would suggest is talk to your senior nurses on staff with you and just kind of process with them. Because sometimes they've seen a similar situation or a similar patient, and they can help you process hopefully and, and critically think through those circumstances as well if the provider doesn't have the time. It's very true. And a lot of times your uh, senior nurses will be maybe in nurse practitioner school or CRNA school, uh, and they're learning things all the time. But just uh, like I was saying before, just being at the bedside for a long time, you learn so much. And so you got a nurse there and that resource, uh, unfortunately, that's not, that's getting less and less common, you know, for there to be nurses who have several years of experience and you have these baby nurses then training other baby nurses, you know, that it's like the blind leading the blind, you know, but you got to do the best you can. Just, you know, just do the best you can with what you've got. So 
Unfortunately, he was found not guilty um, in this trial by the judge. The judge said that his treatment failure significantly contributed to Ms. McAllister's death, but they did not amount to gross criminal negligence and that they didn't warrant criminal punishment. And I think that the you know, the DA in this in this situation was just trying everything that they could to find something to pin on him because it was so unfair, the injustice of it, that he had gotten away with this behavior all these years. And I think the judge just kind of went, well, I don't think this was the one because it was, even though he probably knew what he was doing, just given his behavior, you can't really prove. And he, he really did just, didn't call it right, you know? Right. And, and I think we you, all have that you know, element of error. You know, we're all human. Yeah. yeah. And if you convict someone of that, then are you going to convict the the provider who really did think they were doing the right thing? You know, it's hard to it's it's hard to decipher one versus the other. But with his vast history, you would think that would have played in to some degree. But yeah, so that that's that story. That was our bad doctor story. And I know it was rough, rough to listen to, but I think we learned a lot from it, though. Yeah, me too. I really do. I think the empowerment that we can report, that we have a duty to report, and honestly, the the punishment or the, the weight against us if we don't report is pretty substantial. So even if you've convinced yourself that, you know, if you have that little voice in your head saying something's not right, you really should report, take it to the next step. Talk to your leadership because um, the duty to report is real and you don't want to be stuck in a situation where you should have reported. That's so true. Yeah. Let's move on to the so, good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> move on to the good stuff. That's why I like to leave this story for last because it's you know kind of leaving on a, a more positive note. So this, we're, we're going to talk today about a nurse from St. Louis and uh, her name was Judy Wilson Griffin. She was a perinatal clinical nurse specialist and her grandmother actually worked as a midwife caring for pregnant and postnatal women in Alabama and that inspired her to become a nurse. So she worked for many, many years as a perinatal nurse, then became a nurse specialist. And she was working on her master's degree and was set to graduate this December when she contracted COVID back in the spring. Unfortunately, she passed away in March early, um, earlier this year. But before she died, she was working on a project for her master's degree and she had just gotten the green light to move forward with this project and it was going to help marginalized women and their unborn children there in the St. Louis area. So she was wanting to use an acuity index to help identify potential complications of pregnant women that would, you know, this is something that's used in nursing homes to help determine the likelihood of a patient being hospitalized based on what's going on with them. Acuity indexes are used for lots of different things. We use them sometimes on the floor to determine staffing, you know, how how many nurses we need. So I love I love that she pretty much spent her whole life trying to help marginalized women, women who are at risk, children who are at risk. That was what was her life work. And it's so sad that this awful virus, she's just one of so many people that comorbidities or not, it, I don't know. I don't know if she was sick with other things or not, but that's irrelevant. She was right in the middle of life. She was about to graduate from getting a, um, a degree, you know, and she had a lot of life left to live and she contracted this this virus and, and we lost her. She was, in 2019, she was the March of Dimes in St. Louis, the St. Louis chapter, the nurse of the year 
for the work that she had done. I love that. I just love that she, I don't know if you, you saw, but she was, uh, she created the first maternal transport team mm-hmm. for high-risk pregnant mm-hmm. mothers in, in, um, Back in her time where she was working at the hospital, at Barnes Hospital, she worked to create this transport team for these high-risk pregnant mothers when she learned that these babies and these mamas were dying at such a high rate. She, she took steps to like make such a difference mm-hmm. in her community. Mm-hmm. It was just amazing. And it's so sad that um, the day that she died was actually the day that her project was being reviewed is that what i understood are being approved actually yeah. her project yeah. was approved on the day of her death yes yes and the woman that she was supposed to she was supposed to meet with um with a woman a, a woman about this about going forward with the project and when she didn't show up she, and she didn't show up she the woman said wait she is always so prompt and on time something is not right here and then she found out she had passed away yeah Just so awesome so devastating and, you know, I really hope that these nurses and she was going for her master's. So I hope that someone in her community, in her cohort, just lives on her passion and and picks it up and runs with it. Because, man, she was just, she was paving away. Yes, the, the, the women in that area, the at-risk women and children in that area will suffer because she's gone now. And so, you know... I don't know. This the whole this whole virus thing is it's frustrating for a lot of people. We are not able to see our our family uh, because of it, and my husband's parents are in assisted living, and we can't we can't we have to look at, see them through um, a window. And Thanksgiving is coming up, and we they won't be able to be with us for that. And it's hard. It's really hard. And I think a lot of people are tempted to just give up and say, this is too much and I want to see my family and I, I want to just go on with life. I'm not enjoying life. So I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to you know, limit the number of people that I can get together with. And I just, I would just ask that, you know, people, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I know all the people that are going to probably listen to this are probably like, yes, because, you know, we're healthcare. We're dealing with it. We know, but um wow, we got to keep cheering people on and uh, reminding them to be diligent because there's change coming when they're working on a vaccine and they're working on maybe not a cure, but medicines that can help get patients through this so we can get them off ventilators instead of them passing away once they go on a ventilator, which is what happens a lot. Um, so, sorry. Sometimes the good nurse story, I always say it's it's uplifting and then I, I end up going, I probably shouldn't have said it's uplifting. But they're inspirational sometimes because they are in the spotlight because something happened to them, but that showed all the good that they were doing. And that was the case here. It was the case. She was a driving force for her community. And um, I just have a lot of faith that that her efforts won't fall on deaf ears, that it will continue on. I really, I really think that she was just doing the paving and they'll carry it through. I, I really hope so. I hope so too. Yeah, um, her death from COVID, I guess she was the first in her county to die. And I just really hope that whether she had comorbidities or not, we look at that and say, gosh, you know, it didn't have to be that way, right? So yeah, I agree with you. We all need a little bit of cheering on here in these 
this stretch as it seems like, you know, we were all hoping it would be over by now, um, but it's not. And we just need to continue on doing our part, whether that's for your grandma, for the healthcare providers in your area, for yourself, whatever that looks like for you, just continue on. Yeah, absolutely. And those of you fighting COVID on the front lines, we appreciate you. And, you know, it's, we see you and we know this is exhausting. That is so true. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me. This was uh, really cool to get to do this. Um, normally, I would tell people, you know, you can, I, I, don't, I don't know how to end it because it's, so, it's so different. But normally I would be like, hey, remind everybody where they can find you, but this is where they can find you. <laughs> so. Well, if you're listening on the podcast, you yeah, can find yeah. me in the TriBarN Facebook group um, or TriBarN.com. I loved having you, Tina, and I'm so thankful that if you guys are watching and haven't listened to Tina's podcast, go find it on wherever you like to tune into podcasts, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse Podcast. It's super fun, and she does these almost weekly, right? Yes, every week. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tina, for coming in today and chatting with us. Those of you who uh, didn't tune into the whole thing, please do. And we want to empower you to speak up. So have a great day. Keep learning and take care. Be safe out there. Bye.